Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the review of how the Hamilton police handled the violence at last year's Pride Festival was released yesterday. It says the service fell short and has a lot to apologize for. Graham Crawford joins us to talk about that. And during yesterday's announcement about Phase 2 in the province, the Attorney General announced changes to help bars and restaurants with outdoor patios. The Attorney General joins us to outline exactly what's going to be happening. And should police be wearing body cams? Ongoing pressure across the country for that to happen. We'll get an expert opinion on that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The independent review of how Hamilton police handled the violence at last year's Pride Festival was released yesterday. I made my commentary about this about an hour or so ago at 810. Uh, I called it the uh, the tale of two reports because it was just 24 hours ago that uh, that we had initially had a conversation uh, about the other report that came out. Uh, that was by the or for the Independent Police Review Director, and that was done by police, uh, about police, which basically concluded that everything was done properly, that Hamilton Police planned properly and, and carried out their responsibilities properly during this incident at Gage Park last year. Uh, yesterday, of course, on the program, if you missed it, uh, Cameron Croce from Hamilton Pride uh, commented on that, and, well, he was kind of frustrated. There wasn't a reach-out. Um, from the mayor after um, the violence last year, and there hasn't been one since. So a lot of the words and the platitudes and the statements and messages about working with the community um, are rather hollow-sounding. That was yesterday, and we had mid-invention of the time that, you know, what we were wanting to see now was the other independent report that was due out, well, mere hours after I had that conversation. Uh, we got that report. Uh, I'm sitting right here in front of me, 124 pages long, and it's uh, a different perspective altogether. Uh, this report says that uh, comments made by Chief Eric Gert and uh, after the event on this program on the Bill Kelly Show uh, damaged the relationship between the LGBTQ community and that the police service owes the community an apology. It also has some very serious concerns uh, about how police handled uh, not just the uh, event itself on that particular day, but the lead up to it as well. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Graham Crawford, former Hamilton Citizen of the Year and, uh, uh, well, we call them advocates and, and uh, activists in, in some cases, but that means they're concerned citizens, and certainly that describes Graham Crawford to a T, too. Graham, how are you doing this morning? Well, Bill, it, it was, shall I say, it's the best of times, it was the worst of times, to, to use your Dickens illusion in your, in your commentary today. Well, you've uh, had a chance to go over this report, Graham, and, uh, as, as I did yesterday. And uh, well, First of all, give me the overview, and then we'll get into some of the specifics of this. Yeah, well, the thing is, Bill, uh, I got the report at the same time you did, and I had already set aside time, and it was coming at noon, so I started reading it immediately, and it did arrive, I mean, almost to, to the second at noon. Um, literally, the first page gives away the report, which it's supposed to. It was an executive summary. Yeah. And it was already pretty clear this was going to be pretty hard-hitting. Well, you know, as I read through it and made my way through 124 pages, it, uh, it stayed that way. It's a damning report. Um, it calls the police out for uh, inept behavior, uh, poor management, uh, poor decision-making, uh, poor management processes, um, poor communications. And, Bill, I have to say to you, I was smiling when I, I was smiling, even though it was very difficult content. Did you ever think that Bill Kelly and the Bill Kelly show would be in an independent inquiry into the Hamilton Police Service a number of times, not just once? Yeah, well, that, of course, is, a, is alluding to the, uh, the number of appearances that Chief Gert made on this program after that event. And uh, as you and I recall, we had some pretty you know, intense discussions about exactly what happened or didn't happen and some of the perspectives on this. And uh, some of the Chief's comments, which are, uh, of course, described in this report, uh, caused a great deal of consternation uh, in the community and uh, the greater community, not just within the LGBTQ community, but I mean in the greater community as yes, well, true. which is which is also addressed uh, in uh, in Mr. Bergman's report. Yeah, the thing that I was uh, quite pleased with, and I have to be honest, impressed with, um, is that what uh, lawyer Scott Bergman, who is the author of this report and did all of the interviews, I was interviewed by him, for example, uh, and he interviewed dozens of people, uh, both police and members of the community. Um, what I was impressed with is that the report focuses on what happened prior to Pride, the Pride violence itself, and then what uh, subsequent actions and statements that have been made after Pride. So it, isn't ju it doesn't just focus on sort of the 45-minute window uh, of the Pride violence, the moment that happened. I think that's a really good thing, because 
uh, what it what it suggests, and in my view, proves is that the HPS set this up for failure. And I'm not saying they did it intentionally. They either are just utterly inept or they did it intentionally. I tend to think it's, it's the former, not the latter. But um, when you look at the details that uh, Scott Bergman found out about the planning that happened, the operational plan and or lack of operational plan, at least details in the operational plan, um, the fact that uh, the crime manager of Div- Division 20, which is where Gage Park is located, didn't even know that Pride was happening two days prior to the event, um, it, it was set up not to work. Uh, again, I'm not suggesting by design, but it almost doesn't matter. It failed because they weren't prepared. And this can't be new to them. Uh, Pride was is well, one uh, of... Graham, especially because there was an incident the year before, at the very same day, at the very same park. At the very same location. That's yeah. the, I mean, because the, the chief, as you know, has been on your show saying, well, Gage Park's awfully big. How could we know? Well, I'm telling you, Berkman proves well, you could know because it was pointed out to you prior to. The, the, the lack of communication within the HPS, which Berkman proves in his report, is appalling. And for somebody who, you know, earned their living as a management consultant, this is the kind of stuff, like, you almost never saw stuff this bad. I mean, obviously, you know, communication can always be better and processes can always be refined. This is fundamentally broken. Um, it's like, we're talking about pride, but there, there are 400 events that happen in Hamilton that require uh, city applications and approval that get sent to the police. I, I shudder to think what the others We've just been lucky, I guess, that uh, that white supremacists have not shown up at those events. Because well, let me let me just take a second here. I, the police plan. It's yeah, I shocking. want to take a second. I want to take a second and read the first paragraph of the overview on uh, page seven. I know you know it well, and it's yeah, one of the yeah. things that struck me. I was busy as you were probably were. I've got my yellow marker here yeah, I, I, that I was using last night, and a lot of yellow marks in this thing. Uh, and I, I, it's not going to take long. The two-spirit and LGBTQI communities are entitled to celebrate their sexual orientation, their diversity, gender identity, and expression. They must be afforded full protection of the law in doing so. They are equally entitled to bias-free policing in their daily lives. The majority of Canadians understand this. Some do not, including homophobes, white supremacists, and organized agitators. They spew hatred, vitriol, and derision. They are quick to rely on freedom of speech while intolerant of the constitutional freedoms and the rights of a multicultural, diverse society. This is the, the, kill, this is the, the takeaway line, though. A democratic society must recognize that the expression of abhorrent views is a necessary price to pay to enjoy our freedoms, but there are limits, enforceable limits. And that, that really sets the tone for the whole report, doesn't it? It does indeed, because yeah, Berkman, as you know, points out examples of where, you know, uh, the criminal code or, or just uh, the law of the land, but also by law, so localized laws, could have been used but were not used and generally are not used by the police. And he, one of his, of the 38 recommendations is that the police in the city of Hamilton get together with bylaw and talk about how can we use bylaw to help deal and diffuse some of these kinds of things going forward. Well, and, and that particular case, and it, it harkens back to some of the conversations I had uh, with Chief Gert and others about what happened that day and, and, and how uh, police responded. And, and by the way, we should say that, uh, that Mr. Bergman in his report uh, does suggest that, okay, they did not prepare for this properly, they did not put supply, but once police came on scene, he says, I consider their, their, their actions to be according to the plan. That's the, they, they did respond properly, but it took them an awfully long time to get there. Well, that's uh, the and, thing, Bill, and that's important, is, is once they yeah. actually got to the point where the violence was happening, Bergman feels they behaved properly. It's every second day, week, month prior to that that they did not, and he proves that. And he's done his homework on this. I mean, you and I have talked about the Stonewall riots back in 1969. Mm-hmm. He references that. He talks about the bathhouse raids uh, that occurred and, and some of the other instances of uh, incidents at pride parades. And he raises an interesting point here about, well, and, and, and Bergman touched on it in the first paragraph there, about, you know, the freedom of speech situation, which we were told that, well, how come the Yellow Vesters were allowed to do this and how come they were allowed to yell things? Well, they have the right to speak to a point. That's right. Uh, as he points out here, there was a bylaw here in Hamilton, which I didn't know about until I read this report. I didn't either, Bill. That you cannot use a, a loudspeaker or a megaphone uh, without a permit. 
and and that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing to try to shut down the the the, the people that were there for pride. That's right. uh, nobody seemed to ask, "Do you have a permit to do that?" Nobody took it away from them. They just allowed them to continue to do that. So either they they don't know the law, or they didn't enforce the law. That's right. It's one or the other, um, and neither of those are are really acceptable. Um, so another example of where there's either just poor communication, poor understanding, poor leadership and management, um, or a desire to turn turn a blind eye to, to all of the above. I don't know, Bill. Um, and in fact, I believe the only way we're actually going to get to the root cause of this problem, the bigger problem of policing in Hamilton, not just with the LGBTQ plus community, but of course with racialized communities who are thankfully... Um, being heard finally by more people uh, right now is one of Bergman's, I think perhaps his key recommendation is that the HPS and or the board conduct an organizational cultural review of the Hamilton Police Service. I think that is critical. It's a major undertaking, but it is the only way in my experience, and I would say in my professional experience, to understand the root cause of these kinds of problems before we can really start to, to fix them. The other recommendations, while I don't disagree with any of them, um, are, uh, more of them are sort of Band-Aid approach things, and I'm not suggesting that, that Bergman is suggesting Band-Aids are okay. But, for example, um, you know, having a, he recommends the HPS hold a big town hall. That's fine. That's probably a good thing. But it in and of itself, given root cause problems that are evident in this report, a town hall isn't going to fix that. A liaison committee uh, or advisory committee isn't going to change the systemic problems in the Hamilton Police Service. Well, Graham, for the simple reason that those things already exist, in, in name at least, and uh, they don't seem to be very effective. Uh, they're not listened to. Uh, apparently they're not you know, asked uh, their, their opinions on a number of key issues. I mean, that seemed to be one of the main parts of contention in, to, to, to start of this whole thing rolling a year and a half ago. Well, it's true. It's true. And I mean, one of the you know, fundamental issues is the person who was the community liaison officer had uh, left, uh, was no longer employed by HPS, but unfortunately, no one was told. And so the only point of contact that anyone had been given was that person. The person's email was still uh, operational, hadn't been shut down, so people couldn't understand why they weren't getting a response. And then they finally did figure it out, got in touch, and were told, oh, she's been gone, uh, you know, for, I think it was six or eight months. And that position was left vacant for, for 15 months. And that decision was made by Chief Gert. Let's not forget, she didn't skip out and not tell personnel or HR. She, she retired, and presumably there was a little going away thing, I, I guess. Uh, Gert decided not to, to fill the position. What does that tell you about his thought process? So he can go on on he wants through his communications officer that he cares and he's wanting to rebuild and blah, blah, blah. Except how could you make the decision that we don't need the community liaison officer anymore? I, I just don't get it. Um, and, you know, all roads lead to Chief Gert here. Let's be clear. This is how hierarchies work. This is, this is the job of the CEO, chief, whatever you want to call the person ultimately responsible and accountable. And yet Scott Bergman is uncovering fundamental flaws with basic processes that actually could affect and did affect people's lives. Gert needs to be held accountable for this. This is a significant problem. This is not just, oh, well, oops, sorry, we'll do better next time. Not good enough. And I am really looking forward to watching uh, this, the live stream of the Hamilton Police Service board meeting on Thursday. Of this That'll week. be Thursday, yeah. How are they going to react? What are they going to say? Well, uh, this is the whole thing. I mean, we should mention, by the way, that we did reach out to the chief and to, to the mayor's office. Both of them said that they're not going to say anything publicly until after the uh, presentation. Mr. Bergman himself will be there at that meeting uh, to go over this uh, this report, and I'm sure there'll be a number of questions from uh, some members of the police services board about uh, his findings in this situation. Well, let's hope so. I should also mention that uh, the day after that, Friday morning, uh, Mr. Bergman's going to be on this program oh, uh, to exactly. talk about this, too. I, we talked with him, I guess it was the week he was actually appointed to this, and I have not talked to him since because he's been a busy guy uh to get this together uh, listen i'll tell you what graham there's so much more i want to cover here uh can you hang on for a few minutes 
we, we've got to do some some business here and some commercials and things like that. But I want to, I want to carry this on uh, on the other side, if you don't mind hanging around for a little bit. Happy to, well, thank you. Okay, let me do that then, because uh, a lot of ground to cover on this, and uh, we want to make sure that you have a full understanding of just what's in this report and the implications thereof. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of the uh, report that was issued yesterday, it's entitled Pride in Hamilton, an independent review into the events surrounding Hamilton Pride 2019, uh, written by uh, Scott Bergman. Uh, Mr. Bergman, of course, is a partner in the, uh, the law firm Cooper, Sandler, Shimei, and Bergman LLP. Uh, he was commissioned, of course, to do this report. It's taken a lot of time for him to do this, and it's a very extensive report. As I mentioned, about 124 pages, footnotes, and a number of different references in here uh, to give you context to a lot of the things that are being discussed. Uh, Graham, thanks for hanging on, by the way, through the news break. Glad you could see because there's so much here to, to digest and go over. Uh, I, I want to start right at the, with you. You were one of the people that he actually interviewed for this. Talk to me about that process and that experience. Yeah, he, uh, I was uh, contacted and uh, agreed to be interviewed. Um, it was with Scott Bergman directly and one of his uh, law partners uh, who was with him. And, Bill, I, as I recall, it was close to 90 minutes, and it was a very intense interview. And I remember th- thinking at the time, well, during the interview, I thought, well, these are good questions. But more significantly was the follow-up questions which meant he was listening, because he wanted to better understand, and he questioned and made sure he verified things and so on. I left that interview thinking, well, I'll tell you, if he interviews everybody else the way he just interviewed me, and speaking personally, if everyone is, is as open and honest uh, to the best of their ability in terms of recollection, uh, this will be good. But, Bill, I, I, you've asked me before, I mean, how, you know, how hopeful are you for the report? And I said, well, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I, I'm skeptical. I just don't did, know. Did, did he ask you that question, too? And, but this report actually reflects what our community has been saying since, the, since it happened. Um, and that is a good thing, the fact that the, the voices in our community who were expressing their views, not just views, but facts and experiences, they are reflected in this report. Uh, that is a good thing. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know that I'd go so far as to say it's a vindication, but it, you know, it's, if people want to call it that, that's okay with me because it's essentially that. It says that you were telling us what actually happened. Uh, people also in the report, though, it's referenced, shared their experiences, uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community, with the police, and they're not good. Uh, and that is included in the report as well. Uh, the kind of homophobia and mistreatment by police is evident throughout the community, particularly the trans community. And um, so the report goes into those details. That's why I think there is a there is a big decision ahead of the Hamilton Police Service Board as to whether or not they have the faith in the current chief to try to repair these damages. And it isn't, this report focuses purely on the LGBTQ plus community. As you know, Bill, there are other communities in this town who have experiences that are at least as bad as, as ours. Uh, is Gert the guy to continue with? Secondly, what is the board going to do um, to implement and monitor? Because one of, one of um, Bergman's recommendations is they need to come up with a methodology, metrics, how are these recommendations being implemented, and how successfully, and what are the results? That's a whole other effort in and of itself. And so uh, there's a lot lying ahead for, for the Hamilton Police Service Board, and I do not believe, and I hope, that councillors Chad Collins, Tom Jackson, and the mayor, who all of three of whom sit on the police board, do not try to sweep this thing under the rug. Well, they can't. There's no way this is going to happen. I mean, this, there's, I think, a real appetite for something to happen as a result of this. I mean, this is available to the public. They're going to read this. They're going to digest it, as you have and as I have. Uh, and they're going to be looking to see what's going to happen. Uh, and because there's so many things going on. And, and to his credit, uh, as, as I'm going through this, uh, dozens of people were interviewed, including yourself, of course, for this uh, report by Mr. Bergman and, and his, his people and his law firm. Uh, 
and and some from the LGBTQ community. Uh, some uh, identify. Some people are here identified. Some others are not. But their their comments are still in here anecdotally. He also interviewed, according to this report, a number of police officers, and not just senior management, but frontline officers. Uh, some of them anonymously, but we still have their comments on here, and they're they're very instructive. Uh, some of them actually expressed some concern about the way this whole thing was handled. Uh, and, and obviously those are decisions that were made at the time. And, you know, all the officers that finally did respond that day in Gage Park, uh, you know, were, were kind of looking around saying what's going on here. And, you know, there, there's some concerns about, about the staffing for this and the lack of communication. And one of the points that, because I remember having a conversation with Cameron Croach about this uh, a couple of days after the event happened last year and the confrontation happened. And I said, did you not have a meeting with them? And he said, two days before, I was, he said, I had a 45-minute phone call with uh, somebody at the, and I, whose name he couldn't remember. Uh, but apparently that was not the person that showed up that day. No. Uh, and they had no idea about what was going on, where it was going on. So there was a total lack of communication within the police themselves. Uh, there was also a SEAT application. SEAT is a, an acronym for a special events advisory team. That's a number of people at the city that basically go over applications to do an event, for instance, at Gage Park. Uh, and they applied for it as they did in the past year, and it was it was approved and, and sent down. But it was not with the application with police services. And I'm wondering again, that's a, that's a, that's a problem. That's somebody screwed up there by not including that because that would have given them direction about what was going to happen and when. Bill, the, the officer who was responsible for building the operational plan, which has to be built for every event of such as this, didn't even know what seat was. Uh, the police services. Uh, sit on the seat committee. This is not a mystery to them. They're, they have a, an officer who sits on seat, mm-hmm. who did not pass on the information, but thought the, the operational planning officer would have, have it. Well, not only did, did uh, she not have it, I believe, it doesn't matter if it's, but I, the officer did not have it, um, the officer didn't even know what a seat application was. The officer did not look at last year's seat application, which, by the way, is not just a name of event and your name here, a seat application is actually quite detailed because the city wants to know for its own you know, liability purposes and approval purposes, like what exactly are you proposing? How many people are you expecting? Where is it going to be? What kind of security will you have in place? It's quite detailed. And yet the Hamilton Police Service basically said, hands up in air, gee, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. How is this possible, Bill? That, that, you know, this is not the first time a seat application has, has been submitted to the, ha- the Hamilton Police Service. And as I say, they're actually, they actually sit on the committee. But, the, but for some reason or another, it wasn't passed along. The processes are broken or they are being mismanaged. I don't know which one it is, but neither option is good. <sighs> And, and there's a lot of still what he said, she said situations in this report. You know, here's what police said happened. Here's what some of the people that were on scene said really happened. Uh, some of the alleged dialogue that purportedly went on between officers and some members of the public. Uh, and, and you're going to get that. I mean, no matter, you know, stop 10 people that just saw something happen. You're going to get 10 different opinions on what happened and why it happened. I get that. But but there's got to be some some reconciliation about exactly how this was done and and the the interaction between police and the agitators and the the people that were there for pride, uh, and and the frustrations that that we hear and that I heard from you and from Cameron and a number of other people that attended that particular day and from some of the frontline officers apparently according to the report from Mr. Bergman here, uh, there was an awful lot of of angst uh, on both sides, all three sides really about what was going on and how it was being handled. And I understand some police protocol, and he identifies this, by the way, in the report. I've talked to some officers before this report even came out about how their methodology is when there's a confrontation. And, and no, they don't usually make arrests right then and there because that would only escalate the situation. And the first job for police in a circumstance like this is to de-escalate, and that's apparently what they were trying to do. Yeah, but some of the comments that. that were alleged to have been made uh, probably went a long way towards escalating the situation itself. Yeah, but Berkman points out, though, that the violence had stopped by the time the police had arrived. The pushing and shoving and yelling continued. Yeah. But the violence had actually already stopped. The police were so long in coming. And there's, it's very interesting in the report. There's a number, I think there were five in total, possibly six, but five 911 calls placed by different people. And, uh, of course, guess 911 calls get recorded, so you're able to go back and listen. Mm-hmm. And the first one, the response was, well, what do you want me to do? I don't know where, where this is. Uh, this is 911. 
this person is calling because people are being smashed in the face with helmets and kicked and punched. And, and you know, it's just appalling what happened at 911, saying, basically, I'll put it on the board. I quote, I'll put it on the board, but there's nothing I can do at the moment. That's how this thing started. And if that isn't a broken process, I don't know what is. And every one of these processes are handled by individuals who are supposedly trained. They're certainly paid. And we need to investigate how is it possible that this could happen. Is this the only time it's happened? Surely to goodness, a bad process doesn't just affect the LGBTQ plus community. It must be affecting lots of people, lots of communities, lots of events. And I think we have, a, we have a broken system and a systemic problem in our Hamilton Police Service. And, you know, people are talking these days about, uh, about defund the police. And I must confess, when I first heard defund the police, I thought, you mean what? Stop the police department. That's not what it means. It means they, they get $177 million every year, and they always get the highest percentage increase every year from the taxpayers of the city of Hamilton. That has to stop. We also need to start cutting back how much is given to the police and taking that money and removing services that the police currently provide and maybe setting up other systems, more humane, more better trained um, systems that work. That's what defund the police is about. It's also about wholesale change. But, Bill, one of the things I I do want to point out quickly, last point on this, is Bourbon goes on at some length about the quality of training at the Hamilton Police Service as it relates to sensitivity training, and it is not a good story. The training is poor. People can't remember what what they learned, if they learned anything. Some of the officers, actually, in this report, at least two of them, I think he mentioned, said they don't remember getting any training at all. They probably did, but they don't recall it. They don't recall it, and what they said was, uh, culturally, it's good to get the certificate because it's good for your career. So this is tick-the-box training. It's the worst kind of training. So even if you show up, you just show up in body, but maybe you don't show up in mind because you don't care, because you're going to get your certificate, because it's an attendance certificate. That is ridiculous. That is so old school. So we don't in any way test what people learned uh, and what they're using on the job. There is no follow-up. There is no validation of learning retention and learning application. This is one of the things I used to do for a living. And basically, it's a waste of time because you have no idea if any of the training stuck. And in this case, we've actually proven that it doesn't. So uh, there's so much wrong within the service. And again, the focus of this report, despite the fact that it's 124 pages long, costs 600 grand, and it was done by a professional, um, it only focuses on the interaction between the LGBTQ plus community and the Hamilton Police Service. And we're not the only ones who are uh, suffering at the moment or challenged. No, but, 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 but to that point, I mean, that, that was the mandate that Mr. Bergman oh, no, was given, so I, I understand that. He probably read another 124 pages about, about other situations like this, too, uh, because you're right. I mean, this is a part of a broader conversation uh, that I think everybody is having these days about, uh, about police and the role of police. And, in fact, uh, you know, some of the officers I know uh, like to see that discussion happen, too, because they want to get some clarity on what's going on. Uh, yeah, one of the more contentious see. points, I only got a couple of minutes left here, uh, that I heard uh, the day after this report, well, it was a Saturday, I mean, but you know, the Monday after when we started t- covering it on the program, uh, and a lot of those, I guess all of those interviews are included, uh, at least, uh, you know, in passing in, in this report, uh, was that the, 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 the LGBTQ community, the Pride people did not want the police there. And that was pretty clear, and both sides said, yeah, that was the way things were. Uh, and, and some people are suggesting, and you heard this, and I think you and I talked about this on the show just after the, this event occurred, Graham, that maybe that was the underlying reason why they were slow to respond, because they said, well, if you don't want us here, then we're not going to show up, uh, which I don't think is the case at all. The chief has never said that was the situation. But Mr. Bergman does obviously understand that that was a mindset among some people because he actually addresses it on page 22 of this report where he says whether police are allowed to recruit at Pride because they wanted to put a booth there or formally participate in the celebrations in other ways, 
Whether that happens or not, they are not relieved of their responsibility to keep the peace and maintain public order. And that's a conversation I remember having with Chief Gert after the fact uh, as well, that whether they wanted you there or not, if there was a possibility of public disorder, that's where the cops are supposed to be. I mean, look, the guy that runs the Krakos around the corner doesn't want the cops there either, but the cops are going to show up because that's their responsibility and they want to maintain law and order. And there seemed to be a breakdown on that particular day about that responsibility. And I don't know where the, the responsibility for that breakdown lies. Uh, you know, as you say, there's a number of recommendations. Uh, but it's not pointing an accusing finger. It's just saying that shouldn't have happened the way it did. Yeah, well, I, I think this whole debate about we didn't want them there, uh, we need to define there. That we, No one said that you couldn't have cruisers parked around the curbs. Uh, right by the the rose garden near the fountain, whatever. What what Pride said was, we don't want you in full uniform with weapons, walking in the Pride event area. That's what they said. So this notion that we we told the police, we don't want you anywhere near uh, the event. We don't want you to do anything is nonsense. The police are using it conveniently to say that they didn't want us there, so it took us longer to get there. Nonsense. That's irresponsible, and Bergman points that out. And the chief should be ashamed if he's suggesting that because, and this is the, the message that has unfortunately been left with the community, was, well, you didn't want us there, so we weren't prepared. Well, no, as it turns out, the reason you weren't prepared is because you're inept, because your processes are broken, because your officers are poorly trained, because there's no oversight on the officers. Um, it is an appalling situation, and the chief, Bill, I hope if the chief does dare to come on your show again after he gets media training which bergman recommends he gets uh, i hope he ex- tries to explain this no actually uh in light of the the release of this report uh liz russell our producer was in touch uh, with the chief's office yesterday he's gonna be on the show next week he'll do his town hall as per usual Good. and uh, we'll give the public an opportunity to ask questions as as he did before i mean he has not shied away from this and uh whether you agree with him or disagree with him and i know people have pretty strong opinions on that uh he has made himself available on this program to talk about that and 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 that's good because that's that's the kind of accountability i think that we need in situations like this uh the day i guess we're all going to be looking forward to is uh, two days from now of course police services board meeting a virtual meeting it'll be uh, certainly because of the situation here but the response from the police services board is going to be uh well instructive shall i say uh about just what they're going to say what they're going to do uh you know and the old political game of okay we motion to receive the report which basically means put it in the bottom drawer uh better not be the situation here there's better be a wholesome discussion about what's included in this report and the recommendations well i hope so bill because if council can talk for three and a half hours about soapy bikes the Plymouth police service board surely can speak uh, for an hour or so about this important report that is detailed thorough and professional and the author of the report will be sitting uh, as part of this meeting, virtually, of course, because of COVID. But they better take the time and not insult him by, by doing perfunctory, receive the report and move on. I agree with you. Well, and as we mentioned, uh, Mr. Bergman will be on this program on Friday, the day after the Police Services Board meeting. And it'll be uh, fascinating to get his perspective on what's happening. And by the way, I know we're just about out of time here, getting waved off his stage here. But <laughs> the reality here is, and I'm glad you drew this analogy, this report, in as much as it was about what happened on Pride last year, is really a microcosm for what has to happen in the greater community. The timing of this couldn't be more meaningful because of what's going on uh, in the States and here in Canada vis-a-vis protests and, 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 and a rethinking, I guess, of, of policing and, and how policing are going to be responsible uh, and effective in the community and to try to build some of those bridges. Uh, and and that's that's got to be part of this broader conversation as well. And I know you're certainly going to be part of that conversation because uh, we're not going to give up on this either, Graham. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, and thanks for your continuing uh, interest in, in making this thing happen. Uh, now the ball's kind of in their court, and we're going to see what happens. But I know you and I are going to talk about this again very, very shortly. But uh, we've got to do a break right now. Appreciate the time, Graham. Thanks, Bill. Graham Crawford, of course, uh, former Hamilton Citizen of the Year. And uh, concerned citizen, as we all are, about what's going on here. The report, by the way, is available right now if you just want to Google it. Uh, you can get the details of uh, Pride in Hamilton. And uh, read it for yourself and uh, draw your own conclusions. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, a long-awaited announcement as we uh, were waiting for phase two of the uh, rebirth, I guess, of the Ontario economy. And then it's been really, really rough for a lot of people, of course, during COVID-19, especially restaurateurs. And, and, uh, well, the Premier addressed that yesterday with this announcement. We're taking the next step. It starts this Friday, June the 12th at 12.01 a.m., with increasing the limits on social gatherings from five to ten people. I know that staying apart from our friends and loved ones has been one of the hardest parts of the last few months. And hopefully today's announcement will bring some relief. Well, uh, it's uh, welcome news, mind you, here in the Hamilton area. We're still kind of stuck on the first phase, but we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but it does also give the opportunity for restaurateurs to do something that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, and that was to have more outdoor patios. Obviously, there's going to be some concerns about people inside a restaurant proper uh, because of social distancing. But uh, out patios... It's, and at the time, we were told, great idea, but boy, there's so much red tape. Well, a lot of that just got removed uh, by the Attorney General's office yesterday. Doug Downey is the Attorney General for the province of Ontario, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. So, Mr. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, glad to be here, Bill. This is, this is a great topic. Well, it's a great day to be out on a patio right now. It's a little early. It's not going to happen until after Friday, of course. But maybe, Doug, explain to us exactly what your office has done to try to make this an easier transition. Yeah, I I know everybody knows that the bars and restaurants, of the whole hospitality sector has had a really tough go. They've been really affected through COVID-19, and so I've been trying to find ways to, to support them. And sometimes it's it's supporting them by getting things out of the way to let them do what they do. So we're, we stripped out some red tape, we stripped out some costs, we've made this uh, much easier for, for people, licensed establishments, to temporarily expand the patios or add a new one. Uh, once they're able to reopen and, and allow for safe social distancing. I'll give you an example. We currently, if you wanted to extend your patio, you'd have to file a fee, fill a form, get an approval. You get 14 days. you got to do it again at the end of the 14 days, and you do this four times. Uh, what we've done is we said no fee, uh, no paperwork, follow the rules, and you're good to go until January the 1st. Uh, yeah, because I was talking to one restaurateur who actually just outlined that very same process you just described here, Doug. And he says, by the time we have all finished all the red tape and all the paperwork you need to do, it's October, and I got to close it up again. Uh, but this this is going to give these guys a, a, really a jump start on onto the, the patio season. I mean, as you say, a lot of them have been shut down since the middle of March, and uh, they're hurting financially. And uh, you know, let's face it, if you have a restaurant right now that's got a capacity of forty or fifty people, they you're not going to be allowed to have forty or fifty people in there for a long time to come because of physical distancing, but this gives them a, that chance to at least set some stuff up outside, doesn't it? Absolutely, and and we want to make sure that, that they're safe, their, their workers are safe, the patrons feel safe and are safe. Um, so we have some guidelines uh, in terms of spacing and, and that sort of thing. Um, but look, we, we need for our hospitality industry to to survive and thrive, and, and I just think this is a wonderful way to, to get it in place for patio season. And I think that there will be a lot of uh, a lot of uptake on this. Uh, we should mention that, and I'm glad you brought that up. This is not, uh, you know, giving people licenses to just start slapping something up there as of Saturday. Uh, that there are some rules and regulations that they're going to have to follow, and uh, we'll we'll give them the, the web page where they can go to to get that because I know it's on your uh, your page there for the for the ministry about exactly what this is going to entail. So there there are some things that they have to meet, some qualifications they're going to have to meet, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, they want to coordinate with the municipality. Some municipalities sure. have, have certain bylaws and that sort of thing. But but we have loosened up. Uh, I'll give you an example of the barriers. Uh, under the rules, that's very prescriptive. It says you have to have a 0.9-meter barrier, and there's other rules around it. Uh, I've changed it so that as long as there's a clear demarcation between the licensed area and the, and the non-licensed outside that. So you could have planters, for instance. As long as there's something... That, that displays what that what that difference is. It doesn't have to be as prescriptive as before. And part of that's because I, I want the cost for individual restaurants and bars not to, to escalate beyond their ability to actually do this. Yeah, and that was a concern that we've heard. And we're going to talk to some of the restaurateurs in this area here in just a couple of minutes and try to get some response uh, as to how this might actually help them. As we say, Hamilton is not included in Phase 2 as of yet, but that could change uh, as you get daily information about what's going on. What about enforcement in a situation like that? Another area that uh, that we're, they were concerned about, uh, is that still going to be at the responsibility of the bylaw at the local municipality? 
Well, I mean, the municipality have its own enforcement concerns. AGCO yeah. is still going to do its job, as they always have. There's no no change in, in you know, their inspections and, and that kind of stuff. But we're not having it so that they have to file, get an inspection, and then do it. We're, we're, we're letting them operate as adults, and here's the rules, follow the rules, and, and then we'll, we'll do our part as we roll forward. Yeah, and uh, this is the impression we got from bylaw here in the Hamilton area that uh, that they'll simply do the same enforcement they always do, vis a vis separation, etc., like this. And uh, a lot of the time, anyway, most of the the bylaw enforcement that's done is done on a complaint basis, anyway. I mean, if somebody points out and says, "Hey, there's 50 people there," there should only be 20. Uh, obviously, they're going to get a visit from bylaw in situations like that. But uh, I get the sense people are so much in a hurry to to get this thing done and to get back on their feet and start opening the doors again that I don't think compliance is going to be a problem here. You know, we can't. I can't state enough how much people have have sacrificed and and really done the right thing to get us to the point where we're we're looking at reopening. So, you know, hat, hats off to everybody who's who's made those efforts. And uh, but yeah, there, summer summer's coming, uh, and people want to start moving forward as long as the numbers hold. And as you know, everything we do is coordinated through the chief medical officer of health and the health table, as long as the numbers and metrics say that we can do it, then then we're ready to go. Were you in on the discussion at all about who gets to phase one, who gets to phase two? As you might expect, there's a lot of disappointed people here in Hamilton and in Haldeman and in other communities around here uh, that were expecting to be involved in this too. And, and I know that, you, you're, as the Premier told us many times, it's a consultation with Dr. Williams and others, of course, in public health uh, to make that determination. But how often are those evaluations done? I mean, we're not included in this round. Uh, do we have to wait another week or two or three weeks or when there's an evaluation, or is that done on a daily basis? To, to be honest, I'm not I'm not at, at that table. Uh, I'm at several other tables, but I'm not at that table. That's very much a medical uh, mm-hmm. medical driven table uh, on the data. So uh, the criteria that that they go by and the metrics they go by are something that I'm on the receiving end of. Uh, but really, it's not a political decision. So there's no uh, you know political input needed from from people like myself. No, absolutely. Well, and well, again, we've talked to the medical officers of health about that and try to get some clarity on that. Uh, as always, uh, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, thanks so much for uh, the work that's going on. We're into phase two, and, and hopefully uh, the, the phases are going to continue here, and we're going to start uh, getting reintegrated and get the economy back on its feet. Uh, as always, uh, Mr. Minister, thanks so much for the time, and I know we'll talk again soon. Thanks again, Bill. Doug Downey, who is the Attorney General for the province of Ontario, uh, under that part of it, obviously, to cut through some of the red tape so restaurateurs can start getting those outdoor patios that uh, we talked about. And that's effective as of Saturday. And, of course, it's not going to happen here in the Hamilton area because uh, apparently our numbers don't add up uh, when it comes to uh, hot spots and things of that nature for COVID-19. Uh, I know somebody who's probably disappointed about that is uh, Jason Cassis, who is uh, with Equal Parts Hospitality, one of the great restaurateurs uh, here in the Hamilton area. Uh, Jason, welcome back to the program. First of all, great to have you with us again. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Jason, you were at the starting line, ready to go, and say, let's open the doors, and then uh, they pulled the rug out from under you and said, not Hamilton yet. How disappointed are you? Uh, We were disappointed, but um, it's like anything. I guess uh, crawl to walk to run is just uh, (laughs) the mantra of the government. And uh, we're going to abide by what they say. I mean, we're all restless and we're all feisty. We all want to get out there. And uh, kind of like golf, patios are a great way to uh, to do it safely. So I, I would love to see this happen sooner than later, of course. So we're not in this round, but you do know now with the announcement yesterday uh, what they're going to allow and, and, and the criteria for it. Uh, so you, I guess, can at least get a head start on this. I mean, are you, are you doing anything towards us at this point with some of the facilities of what, okay, when they give us the go-ahead, we can just open the doors? We are, absolutely. Good. I mean, I've called our gardener to, you know, start to prep some flowers on the patio. We've uh, taken all of our furniture out of storage getting that ready. We've got table charts we've got to put together to make sure everyone's six feet apart. And then most importantly is all of the lobbying efforts we did with the city uh, to make sure that Hamilton was basically the first city in, in Canada, really, to open up uh, outdoor dining districts such as King William. So today I'll be working with the BIA to make sure that King William's table arrangements are, are laid out safely and so on and so forth. And uh, and make sure that it not only looks good, but it functions well and uh, is a beautiful place to visit. 
Where is that discussion right now? Last time you were on the program, we talked about closing off King William for maybe for July and August. Uh, and I know there was some resistance to it, but an awful lot of people thought it was a pretty good idea. Yeah, well, it, it got passed, Bill. It, it got through council uh, for the for the most part unanimously, and uh, and it is a good idea. I mean, it's a great idea. If I had to choose between being stuck inside of a uh, restaurant during July and August, or I could be sitting in the beautiful weather outside, I think I would choose outside, given the state of the fact that the virus is still kicking around a bit. So I think it, it I think it makes sense and. Um, and Hamilton's really leading the charge on this, which is which is fantastic. I mean, other cities and districts have, have picked up on it now, but I think you'll see that once Hamilton experiences such great outdoor dining, um, hopefully that's next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, once once we experience that, we're going to want more of it, and I think that uh, that we'll be able to change even some of the the least likely places to have outdoor dining. This morning, I was at the Sunset Grill up in Ancaster. Yep. And they've got this big, beautiful lobe of concrete that, that you know, uh, is sitting there outside in a strip plaza. And I said to the, the woman who owns the place, I said, you should probably put some tables and chairs out there. She thought, you know, I never, I never thought of that. I said, well, you know, you're going to be at 50% capacity or less. Therefore, as much public realm as you can get your hands on for tables and chairs not only protects the people who come to dine with you, I said, but they increase your capacity and your your chance at remaining solvent through this because I think it'll be a dark winter. You know, it's just how I feel. But uh, but that's that's the way it goes. I mean, winters are tough anyhow. I think they're even more tough during a recession. But you're an outside the box sort of guy anyway. I mean, it was it seems like it was just yesterday that you were on the program talking about this innovative idea over at the, uh, the McMaster Innovation Park, just around the corner from the radio station. Uh, we, there was some open space there, and then and they, oh, the, I could just see the wheels turning in Jason's head, saying, "You know what? We could do here," and you did it, and it turned out to be just a fabulous idea. There's a lot of people working in that particular area, and uh, and and obviously they they take advantage of a day like this out to, to to partake in the sorts of things that you're doing. So. Uh, you need that kind of creativity to make something like restaurateuring uh, a viable alternative. And we've certainly done that. And you and a, a handful of other folks here in the city have been incredibly uh, creative in coming up with ideas, uh, not just about where to do it, but how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, maybe 10 years ago or something like that, we wouldn't get in this. We would have gotten the same response from the city. But I would say today, you know, Jason Thorne, Steve Robichaud, guys like that sitting up at the top of planning and economic development, you know, they think out of the box as well. So whether council's on-site or off-site with an idea, at least there's idea generation there. Yeah. Right? So so it's it's a bit of a different management team within the city as well. And, and, and again, it usually starts at the top uh, in terms of, of pushing the idea forward. Most ideas are grassroots. But ultimately, someone who manages the collective group needs to push the idea forward to get that, that lobby effort, that all lobbying effort going. Like, I really look forward to seeing how we can change the city in terms of dining districts and making places beautiful. I mean, when you go to Europe, there's lots of piazzas and courtyards and really narrow alleyways that you can set up tables and chairs with. And, and I think... Ultimately, we got to get out from behind ourselves. We were always thinking in terms of liquor control. And, and really, the, the reality is it's not about controlling liquor. It's about controlling taxes. So allowing someone to set up a few tables and chairs in an alley to serve you know, a beer or two or, or, or a bottle of wine to a, to a table of four isn't going to change the universe as we know it in terms of, of conformity to the rules. So I think even the provincial government has done a great job at, at removing that red tape that is required for restaurants to be successful. Well, and you're right. I mean, the city council sometimes takes baby steps, and, and that can be awfully frustrating, especially for guys like you. I mean, I remember the first uh, remember the pop-ups, too, uh, the thing that they did it was a couple of years ago in Westdale. They, they, but they do it, said, yeah, you can do this, but you can't have a liquor license. Hello? Are you kidding? Uh, there's, there, I hope smarter about that now. Because uh, listen, we love King William Street. We love what you guys have done to the district. And uh, boy, the sooner the doors open, the better for everybody. I think in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and it's not just the restaurants that are pushing too. You got companies like Core Urban out there, yeah. you know, that, that do all these wonderful renovations. Like Steve, you know, that that group and Dave Sove and Maureen, 
they're all pushing for the revitalization of streets, right? Like there's nothing more beautiful than wider sidewalks than these larger common areas within a city. And I think that if there's enough of us pushing for that, and it's not just the restaurants that benefit as well. That's, that's a misconception for sure. I mean, as these restaurants reopen, they create foot traffic, which creates safety. And then if you're a retail store that sells beads or yarn or plants or whatever, those places benefit as well because of the foot traffic that restaurants create. So it, it really is an important thing that we get these restaurants and these patios back, uh, back at it because that's going to create the life on the streets that we desire and crave as a city. That, the amenity of life, the amenity of us being able to be together is so important, pandemic or no pandemic. Um, so, and the summertime is a perfect time to do it. So I'm looking forward to getting at it as soon as possible, Bill. Well, fingers crossed, Jason. I hope it happens sooner than later. Uh, let's stay in touch with this and, uh, let's, uh, just get everybody open up again and, uh, see you on the patio real soon. Thanks for the time today. Great talking with you again. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You too. Jason Cassis, of course, from Equal Parts Hospitality, one of the great restaurateurs here in this area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other contentious items, of course, uh, that uh, has been talked about over the last couple of weeks now is uh, the use of body cameras by police uh, as a way to have more accountability, of course, with our police services. Uh, as a matter of fact, even yesterday in his daily briefing, the prime minister touched on it. Here's what he had to say. On our call, one of the things we discussed was the adoption of body cameras. I'm committing to raising this with the provinces this week so we can move forward as quickly as possible. That, of course, uh, the Prime Minister is referring to those uh, weekly conversations he has with the Prime Minister, or the Premiers, rather, of all the provinces. Uh, so it's a debate that's going to happen once again. I know it's happened here in Hamilton off and on, and uh, the, the, the decision usually here in Hamilton has been, well, we don't have enough information right now. There's some good, there's some bad about it, and we're not sure exactly where we want to go. In fact, Calgary, as far as I can understand, is the only city in the country right now that where police officers are actually using body cameras. But is it the best way to go, and is it going to create more accountability? I want to bring Kevin Bryan into the conversation. Kevin, of course, is a professor at Seneca College, a retired police officer, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Kevin, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Anytime, Bill. Happy to be here. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the whole p concept of, of body cameras. You've heard the controversies, Kevin, and we've seen, actually, in some places in the states where there have been alleged incidents of police brutality and things of this nature. Uh, the call seems to be, boy, if those guys had cameras on, we'd know all about this. Is, is it really the, the answer to, to try to solve these, these concerns? Um, I don't, uh, you know what, body cameras are a great idea, and, and I think police are important. I don't think, uh, I don't think cops, for the most part, uh, have any issue with wearing body cameras. And, uh, and as for accountability, officers have to understand, in today's world, you do your job as if you're on camera 24-7, because there's a camera there that you don't see or you don't know is operating. So, I mean, it, all it would do, in, in my opinion, it, you know, number one, it would, um, it would, open the eyes of uh, of the public to the job the police do all the time um it would uh I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all i think it's something uh police welcome i've heard mike mccormick from the toronto police service uh he's the he's the head of the union there uh, he's happy to have them i think where it falls down is you know there, there's there's a huge cost associated with it not so much with the acquisition of the of the body cameras but with the uh storage of all the data and uh, how long do you keep that data for uh, when is it, uh, um, you know, when is it uh, destroyed? Because you can't store all that data. That's the issue that they run into. Well, and the other element there, who gets to see it? Uh, who has eyes on it? I'm sorry, I missed that, Bill. I uh, the other aspect, well, even if you do that, you've got all this data that you've accumulated, but who has to, who, who gets to see it? You yeah, know, it, I, it, I guess the only time you see it is when somebody makes a complaint or somebody uh, um, alleges that something took place during a traffic stop or something took place uh, during an arrest. And they could go back and review that. Um, but I, I, again, it would probably only be the frontline officers. Many officers are already have dash cams uh, on on their, uh, yeah. on their cruisers. I know York Regional Police does, um, and and so every interaction with the uh, public uh, from a from a cruiser from a uniform cruiser is, is recorded. But um, you know, I, I think police welcome it. I think police have to understand in, in, in doing their jobs, they're on video, and and that's what you've got to. Uh, um, you know, that, that's the way you have to approach your job every day. And, and every interaction you have, you try and make a positive one. And, uh, 
it, if it goes south, if it uh, if it winds up not being a positive interaction, but a uh, but a negative uh, interaction with the public, um, you know, with the body cam, it, it will show how that went south. And, and uh, so I, I like the idea. I, I hope they do go to it. I hope they find somewhere where they can afford it, and um, and bring it in. I I, I think it's something. Uh, I'm not going to call it long past due, but uh, it's it's something that the technology is there. Why not use it? Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, because one of the criticisms about it in the past anyway, Kevin, has been, well, it's not reliable technology. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, there can be gaps, uh, this and that. Have they have they improved that? I, I, I don't know. I don't know about the actual mechanics of it. I don't know if the, the improvements are. It, it, would, it would be horrible. And, and the allegations, I mean, if something happens on... Um, if a bad interaction takes place or a violent interaction takes place between police and the public, and all of a sudden that, that camera didn't record it, there's going to be allegations it was deleted. There's going to be allegations that the officer turned it off. So, so there's, there's problems there. And, uh, you know, you, I, I don't know the, uh, the semantics of how that would actually play out, but, you know, you, you'd certainly hope if, uh, um, if the interaction had to be reviewed, it, it, it would be reviewed. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to say is, not always does the fact that it is on tape, not always the fact that, that the, the incident is recorded, does the public get the, um, does the, public get the outcome they desire? And, and, and I'll just go back to the Sammy Yatim and, and, and Priscilla case where yeah, okay. that was fully recorded. That was, that was on tape, yet Priscilla was not convicted of murder. He was convicted of attempt murder. It still didn't get the result that the public felt should have been um, you know, should have come out of it, even though the thing was recorded, you know, and, and uh, you know, that's the way that, you know, even though they recorded, you don't know what's in the officer's head. You don't know what the officer was thinking, what his, what his perception was, even though you see what the officer was seeing, you know, the officer may perceive other things that, that are present and out of sight. And, and uh, it, it may come into his, his actions and it may come into the the, uh, the choice of uh, force that he decides he's going to take, uh, and uh, so you don't know what's in that officer's head, even though you do see it on video. I mean, it's going to cut down on any you know police uh, swearing at the public or treating the public like crap. You know that it, it'd cut down on that, but you have to assume as an officer that's. Uh, I think that's rare anyway. You know, any time you, you you get an escalation between an officer and a, and a driver, for instance. You know, it's because, uh, you know, something escalated it. And, but, but those are rare and, and very often filmed anyway. We can go to YouTube and watch thousands of those. Oh, yeah. The other element to this, too, is is when to have them on and when to not have them on. I mean, I've talked to officers in the past about this. Now, you know, I've had this discussion in the past, too, every time this yeah. comes up, Kevin. And, and, and invariably they say, yeah, but, you know, there are some instances and some uh, where, where police should not have it on because it's a personal thing or it's a squabble, any number of different things like that. If it's a, uh, you know, a domestic dispute, do you really want to have the camera on? And there's, there's got to be a hard and fast policy about that. Do you have it on all the time or, or do you make exceptions? Yeah. I, I know uh, I know what the York Regional Police, the way that they have their, their dash cam videos, is once they activate their, it's running all the time, but it's not recording until they activate their roof lights. And once they activate the roof lights, it actually starts to record then. In fact, it, it, the recording actually goes back 30 seconds. So it will show, if you go through a stop sign and the officer activates his, his uh, roof lights, not only does it show the interaction where the officer stops and, and, and uh uh, uh, has a conversation with the member of the public. It also has now started recording the 30 seconds previous, so you actually see the the offense where the person drove through the stop sign, so to speak. So that's how they have it. Uh, so it, so it's kind of that's how those are activated. You know, when do you turn them on? When do you turn them off? I guess they should be running all the time. It, it's just when do they actually get reviewed? And and because uh, the officer has to have some privacy, you know. So so you, you've got to expect some privacy. But whenever there's an interaction with the public, whether it's at a domestic or no matter what type of an offense it might be at, uh, I think I think you're in a situation where you're 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 gonna be recording it. Could be some very well, that's, that's a good point you make there though, because there could be some very, very uh um points where you're trying to be compassionate with somebody or there's a, a victim of a sexual assault or something uh relaying their 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 information to you. You don't want to be recording that necessarily. I mean that's something you might decide you you know, you turn it off for, 
it, it to be a bit of a tricky spot, but I'm, I'm sure that's something they could work for. For the frontline well, officers, though, uh, you know, for the for the most part, and for any interactions, uh, let's call them roadside interactions or or arrests, um, I think the they, they could uh, do that and record those. I don't see an issue with that. Yeah, because I've heard both sides of that debate uh, from officers that I've talked to, and uh, some are suggesting that, you know, when it's a domestic, uh, you shut it off, because there are privacy issues involved in that, and some things that people maybe, you know, would be very, very uncomfortable being uh, out there in the public realm. On the other hand, I've heard other officers, though, Kevin, have said, look, that's probably one of the reasons you should have it on, because those things can become very, uh, even a, a domestic can become very volatile. You don't know when you walk through the door what you're going to see. And that's it's certainly, I've, I've been at domestics before where, you know, you start, you're, you're dealing with the, uh, the suspect, the, the male party who's assaulted his wife, and all of a sudden the wife turns on you and starts to defend her husband. Uh, and now you're, you know, you know, you're in a situation where you're, you're dealing with two, two parties. So, you know, and, and, and trying to, uh, diffuse the situation with two persons. And so, yeah, they, they can turn south uh, very quickly. And, and the other thing is, you know, and, and, you know, when I worked in the detective office as a, as a detective, uh, many times I would go to uh, arrest somebody at the residence, and I, I was a plainclothes officer. I wasn't a uniform officer. And are we going to start putting cameras with all the detectives as well? You know, like, uh, so because that arrest could take place there, and arrest could go south or or uh, you know, become violent and uh, and it, with uh, plainclothes officers as easily as they can with uh, uniform officers. As a matter of fact, uh, somebody who wants to fight with the police and confront the police and not be arrested is happier to do it with somebody who's in uh, plainclothes uh, as opposed to uniform because they don't have uh, nearly the amount of uh, defensive tools that a uh, uniform officer would carry with them. No, absolutely. And there's the element to this, too, and maybe you could shed some light on this, Kevin, is now that these are being used in more and more jurisdictions, like I say, not so much in Canada yet, uh, but certainly in, in many places down in the States, some have, have, by the way, used them and then dropped them, said that they're not a very effective tool, mm-hmm. which is interesting and part, should be part of the debate. But are they reliable uh, from an evidentiary standpoint? I mean, if this an incident goes to trial, for instance, uh, can you rely on that body camera, the the data that comes from that body camera, uh, in in court? Evidentiary, a, a lot of times you can. I think there's a lot of information that would be on that video, which um, uh, it's way better than eyewitness evidence. You know, because mm-hmm. your memory, eyewitness evidence is, is absolutely the worst evidence or the worst type of, uh, of of testimony and evidence that we that we allow in, in the court. People try to give an accurate version of what they saw but so often because of uh you know because of certain factors the weather the lighting you, they're they're inaccurate with what they say whereas the camera would uh uh you know would, would show us what actually did take place and, and the sequence of events but I, again from an evidentiary point of view with regards to whether or not the officer was justified in the force they used or used excessive force um a lot of times they don't show all aspects of the actual uh, interaction. There, there, there may be other outside influences, and when I say outside influences, the presence of other persons around you that that make you go to a certain uh, use of force uh, uh, option before, as, as opposed to one which might seem more reasonable at the time. So, um, I think evidentiary-wise, they, they can they're more, way more accurate than eyewitness evidence. But um, from a uh, from a, a concept of, of did the officer do the right thing or use the right amount of force, um, they can show you that, but then it, it may not bring in all the factors that were in play with the officer thinking when he did what he did or she did what she did. Well, there's a famous one from a couple of years ago, and it was someplace in, I think, South Carolina or someplace like that. Uh, it was a, a, a man that was confronting police, and it was a cul-de-sac. And uh, the one body camera from the one officer seemed to indicate that, well, what we fired on this guy what, it didn't look like a, any provocation. I mean, there was some yelling going back and forth, and you thought, wait a second here, that, that's, that's problematic. Then they showed a camera from another angle, from another officer who was on the other side of the street, and the guy mm-hmm. did have a gun and he was raising it. But you couldn't see it from this camera angle. These are yeah. not panoramic, are they? You, yeah, you, no, you're only going to get exactly. it's like tunnel vision. Yeah, no, it's it's one it's one of the uh, it's one of the uh, that might be the video that I actually use in my class. And, and what it is, it's a situation where an officer an officer is approaching a suspect, telling him drop the gun, drop the gun. He's carrying a long weapon. As he puts the long weapon to the ground with his left hand, he's reaching to his waist with his right hand to yeah. pull out another gun. And 
the just as just as he's pulling out the gun, there's another officer in, in an advantageous position where he sees the gun coming out, starts yelling "gun, gun," and he shoots the fellow. What what it looks like is an absolute horrific shoot. It looks terrible. It looks like that was a bad shoot. That was problematic, as you call it, severely problematic. Yet when you slow it down with the camera. Right, and when you slow it down with the camera, you see that he's reaching into his uh, waistband for a another weapon. As he puts the uh, long gun down, he's reaching for a handgun in his waistband. It, it, it's it's excellent to show the value, or, or sorry, the um, the uh, in ineffectiveness sometimes of eyewitness evidence. Because if you watch that one time, and when you you witness something, you don't get to watch it over and over again. You only see it once, yeah. and you relay your story to investigators as to what you saw. And and if you only saw that once, when I first saw it, I was asked, "Is that a good shoot or a bad shoot?" And he said, "That's a horrible shoot. That is so I, I can't explain that until you slow it down." And and so there's there's your eyewitness telling the uh, telling anybody the SIU who might be investigating that shooting saying it was a bad shoot when the the body camera actually shows it was a it was a good shoot and uh, absolutely no issues with it when you uh, when you have the uh, value of the uh, camera. Yeah, but to that point, yeah, to that point though, Kevin, what made it advantageous was the fact that there was another officer there with a body camera, so you could get a different angle. Had had the only evidence in court been presented from the one officer where you didn't get that view, uh, who knows how the jury or a judge or anybody else would have made any conclusions about that? Oh no, they would have, they they would have or could have, or some some people with uh, agendas would have alleged the police planted that second gun on the person. That's what would have happened, or, or very well could have happened. I, I know we're kind of getting into the, the you know, the what ifs and what ifs, but I mean, these are the, you know, no. for the number of years you were on the job, I mean, you don't know what you're going to run into on any given shift and, and what circumstance you're going to run into, which I guess is a, another reason for it. But we just got a couple of seconds left here. We should probably finish this off with one of the first points you brought up here is, is the cost. You know, there's a lot of talk these days, in the last couple of weeks, especially about uh, defunding police services. Uh, Chief Sanders in Toronto, by the way, who does advocate for the cameras, uh, is suggesting that in Toronto it's probably going to cost about $2.5 million. Now, that's the Toronto service, which is a lot bigger than Hamilton's and, and many others. But the cost is substantial. It is. It is. But uh, you know what? Defunding the police, uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody... I think lots of people are chanting it right now without thinking it through what it actually means. That's what I... Totally believe I, and I and I think uh, you know defunding the police. There, there'd have to be some debate on that as to. What oh, I hope so. Police actually needs. I hope so, Kevin. Always a pleasure. Uh, great to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Take care, Kevin Bryan. Of course, is a retired police officer uh, and now an instructor and professor at Seneca College. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.